Hey, Chad, we got Tim on the line. What do you want to ask him? What do you do when deals come to you that aren't deals and you have to reciprocate that that's not a deal to the broker? There's kind of a little bit of a fine line, right? You got to look out for your criteria. You got to look out for your investors' criteria. I tend to go, I tend to look at it two ways. One, we kind of go at it with the approach of everybody gets an LOI. So we will submit what we feel is a good offer. And then we just offer our reasoning behind it. And we'll give the broker the opportunity to say, hey, you're the market specialist here. Please feel free to, you know, challenge anything in here or, or tell us where we may be missing something. And then sometimes it just comes down to, Hey, you know, I appreciate that. I, I just, I'm just not seeing it. And so maybe this just isn't a, a deal for me and my investors. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. We've got two amazing guys on the line with us today. Uh, we got Tim Vest. We got Chad Bowers. And that said, Tim, we'll start with you. Welcome to the show today. Hey, Brian. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Very much appreciate that, too. So um, start us off here and tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, uh, Tim Vest, uh, I'm out of the Charlotte, North Carolina area. I've been doing real estate something for, for about 15 years now. I actually started in around 2006 uh, doing land development. Um, working with uh, developers to put infrastructure in place before deals or before uh, uh, developments were brought to the general public. Uh, then moved into uh, single family, fix and flip, single family rentals, that type of thing. Did that until about 2018 um, when I you know, exited the single family space, moved in and started to look where I wanted to go next and uh, kind of landed in multifamily. It seemed like a natural transition. And as I go around more and more to different groups, I'm starting to find that that's a very, very common transition. Um, in fact, just uh, had a two-day networking event in Raleigh, and uh, man, I must have met uh, must have met 20 plus folks who were in single family looking to go into multifamily. Um, so did that around 2019, and have been uh, have been doing multifamily since. Yeah, lot lot to unpack there. I mean, so you you were in commercial real estate in 2006. Yeah. All right. Which is, you know, not quite the worst year to start commercial real estate. 2007 <laughs> would have been worse. But uh, um, any any big lessons learned from, you know, being involved in real estate at that time? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so uh, a lot to unpack. And so let's unpack that one a little bit, because uh, one of the pieces I kind of uh, skipped over there and I've shared this before. Um, so it was doing land development. Uh Three, we were partnering with three different developers. Two of them ended up going bankrupt, uh, and one of them just shut his doors. Um, couldn't keep couldn't keep going forward. Uh, and that was around 2008. Um, 2007 came. 2008 was real bad. 2009, not quite as bad. Kind of exiting out of it, but still not good. Um, so yeah, uh, one of the things I learned coming out of that was one. Don't ever speculate with other people's money, which I didn't. So that's the good thing. It was all mine and my partner's money. So thank goodness for that. But then two, the other 
piece I learned uh, coming out of that was look for real estate assets, look for real estate opportunities where you have multiple exit strategies. And that was probably one of the biggest pieces I came out of that with. In that particular scenario, the only exit strategy, the only way we would move forward with that is if the developer was in place, the market was still good, and we could go to market with it. That was the only way. Um, and, And in that case, it goes really, really well. It's very, very lucrative mm-hmm. until that 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 road dries up, right? That yeah. stream dries up. Um, so coming out of that, I uh, did a lot of uh, searching for other areas where, you know, uh, things that cash flowed from day one, uh, mm-hmm. things that would build equity. But even if they didn't build equity, they cash flowed, and I could I could at least carry them through rough times through the cat with the cash flow. Um, things where you know, worst case, I had to look at my investor and say, hey, look, we're not going to be able to exit it in five years like we talked about, but we are going to continue to cash flow and and pay you on a regular basis. Um, so while it's not, you know, we're not we're not getting to that five-year exit, we are continuing to provide returns. Um, and, uh, you know, that was that was a big lesson coming out of that time. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a smart uh, a good lesson learned there. I mean, multiple exit strategies. You know, and I think a lot of people, um, you know, if you're not thinking about the exit when you start, you you can you're prone to make some mistakes. You know, and, yeah. Um, with the development, it's it's a little higher risk for just that reason. And sure. you know, compare and compa- contrast. You know, development to multifamily syndication is in development. You you put a lot of money up front and you have to wait. You know, and there, there's no cash flow in between, and then you, know, you hopefully get that big pop at the end. Um, whereas multifamily, you know, it's, it's a little more. You know, if you buy a cash flowing asset, getting that money, you're getting that money while you're operating, which is um, different strokes for different folks. I've I've invested in both directions, um, just slight, slight different risk profile. But yeah. uh, um, so so from there to um, doing your single family. Can you, can you explain what got you into the single family and how that transition went? Uh, just mostly just that, uh, you know, I, I'd had a little bit of experience with it just from the standpoint of before I moved into the house that my family lives in. Now we had a house and, um, and we rented it when we left we said, well, we're not going to sell, we'll rent. And so I had some experience with that. And I knew I wanted to stay in real estate in some way, shape or form, despite 2008 experience. And as we all know, single family homes at that time were a steal. Um, you know, I hate to use that term, but they were going for really good prices. Uh, you could find things, <clears throat> you could find things uh, in short sale foreclosure, things like that. So there was a lot of opportunity there if you had capital to go after. Them. Um, and, you know, lending was tough at the time. But uh, you know, we were able to go after uh, we were able to go after some single families. So that's one of the reasons we pivoted into that space. Mm-hmm. Um, just that the opportunity was there. Uh, we were able to, you know, we had some. I had some experience in that market with you know something I had done in the past, and then so we I went that route. Nice, nice, yeah. And I mean, you're right. It was. I refer to it as the great real estate sale of 2009. I mean, it was. Yeah. Um, we, we bought a place that was, you know, short sale pre foreclosure and, uh, um, you know, looking back at it, you know, we bought one, I wish we would have bought, you know, a dozen or sure. you know, a lot more at that time, just because, um, prices were so low, 
And that's, yeah. that's one thing you're, you're seeing the prices, you've seen the opportunity and you jumped on it. So yeah. 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 Yeah, the opportunity was there, but but kind of like you're alluding to, it's hard to time it, right? Um, yeah. you, you know, hindsight's hindsight's awesome. You know, like in my hindsight right now, I wish I would have held on to my single families till this past year. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> it would have. And who knows? I mean, two years from now, you may. I mean, anything you sold last year, you may think, man, I wish you would have held on to those even longer. But yeah. um, it's. It's hard, you know, and a lot of people would look at today's market and some people are saying, you know, it's going to crash, it's going to crash, it's going to crash, you know, but 2007, I don't, there was like one, one person who was saying it's going to crash, it's going to crash, you know, but um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to time, it's hard to time the top, it's hard to time the bottom. Um, yeah, and, 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 you know, folks comparing today to 2007, um I, I won't say that it's not going to crash. I, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but what I do know is I was, a, I was part of 2006, 2007. I saw the lending that was going on in 2007. I can look back and, and remember conversations I had with, with banks and brokers and the types of things they were telling me, the no doc loans, the, just tell me what your income is. Um, you know, submit five applications and the system can't tell that you've, you're one person submitting for five different properties, things like that. Mm -hmm. That's not happening today. The banks have really, really tightened up their lending standards. Um, you know, the amount of documentation I'm having to provide now for, for these deals I'm doing yeah. is, is, uh, in my opinion, it's almost over the top. Um, but it is, you know, their due diligence, the bank's due diligence is light years better than it was you know, 13 years ago. Um, so if it's going to happen, it's not going to be because of lending standards. It's not lending. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that that's the thing. We, I, I think uh, we're reactionary by nature, you know, sure. as, as a country, you know, politically banks, we're always trying to prevent the last crash, you know, and mm -hmm. um, you know, I spent 20 years in the military and it's the same thing there. You know, we're trying to prevent the last war. And a lot of times we're, we were, we're still trying to fight the last war, you know, but right. uh um, it's one of those things where, yeah, I wish I had a much better crystal ball. So, um, in lieu of, I think, I think what you said was smart. You know, you buy something that cash flows up front, and you have multiple exit plans. You know, so you can exit at three, five, eight, or twelve, depending on how the market is, and you know, you're not stuck in into one exit, right. and potentially exiting when things are, you know, not good. So. Right. Yeah, and then, and, and sorry, just to add to that one, one, one of the other big pieces is is just your business plan. You know, um, you know, we we go into things now where the three to four, three or four key pieces in the business plan for any asset are things that we have a significant amount of control over. Things that you know, as long as we focus on them, as long as we work towards those, we control those outcomes. Um, so, you know, we, we go after things like that, where we're not as dependent on somebody else performing, somebody else delivering, yeah. um, or the economy doing better, you know, or something like right. That. So, right. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, that's, a, that's one, one reason I like the value add space is because a right. lot of the appreciation, a lot of the value created depends on how well you execute your business plan, you know? So, you know, if, if in place market rents are a couple hundred dollars if market rents are a couple hundred dollars more than the in-place rents, you know, you know, there's room there, you know, you're sure. going to be able to, you know, execute your business plan and, and move rents up. 
And it's not dependent on the market getting better. It's dependent on, you know, you just bringing the property up to market level, which a lot of operators can do. And that's, in my mind, a much less risky venture or investment for people than, you know, buying a property and hoping, you know, the value doubles in five or 10 years. A little different. Yeah, 100%. uh, Yeah. Completely agree. So... Uh, one question for you, and I love asking everybody the question. Um, what is your big burning why? My big burning why, and I, and I feel like maybe people say this one quite a bit too, but my big burning why right now is a 13-year-old girl who's off at school right now. Um, so, you know, I have one daughter um, and I've I've always kind of looked at things like my parents were set up a little bit better than their parents were by their parents. Mm-hmm. My parents set me up a little bit better than they were. Um, yeah. So my big burning why is to kind of continue that for my family. I want to set my daughter up in a little bit better position than my parents gave me. And yeah. I want to provide, I want to build something and provide a legacy for her. Um, and then, you know, I, I don't want her to feel like she has to graduate college and go chase that dollar. I don't want her to feel like she has to go chase that, that salary. I want her to be able to follow kind of her passion, her dreams. Um, if she wants to go be an artist, she wants to write books, she wants to do whatever, as long as she's doing something constructive and she's passionate about, I want to be able to give her that opportunity. So that's, that's my why. Yeah. I love it. I love it. And, you know, same, same thing happened in, you know, look generations back, you know, my, my grandpa had it better than his parents. My parents had it better than my grandparents, you know, and, uh, you, you, you try to keep on building on the foundation you were given and, and just do a little bit better um, for, for your kids. Appreciate that a lot. And yeah. uh, so, something else I'll add is, you know, having, having the money part figured out buys options, you know, and that's, that's um, I, th- I think you said something that's absolutely key is, you know, a lot of people want to do something that fulfills them, but you know, if you're scraping, to you know make your pay your rent or your mortgage or you know borrowing money to buy food you know you're not going to be able to do something that fulfills you so um i still love the forrest gump quote you know money it's just one less thing you know but uh yeah. anyway um that said let's uh shift gears slightly here and talk about uh some of the projects you've done so um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, sharing some information on, I don't know, maybe pick pick your first, pick your most recent, or or talk about uh, you know some of the projects you've done. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll, I'll talk about one of my recent ones that we took down uh, in Richmond, Virginia, and I, and I'll bring this one up because man, I, I one of the things I've always gotten into with real estate is, is what's the old adage: location, location, location. Yeah, this thing is location. Um, you know, I know I know there's some folks out there that aren't as familiar with Richmond, Virginia. Um, it's a really strong market. Um, and it's a, it's a very, it's got a lot of strong performance indicators in the market, you know, healthcare, uh, medical, uh, education, government, all there in one little downtown area. Um, and then at the same time, um, the, the town just, the city just has some great bones and we, we found a, um, we found a 27 unit building. Uh, one of the last low-income 27-unit buildings in an area called Shaco Slip. Um, and in Richmond, Virginia, there's two really, really um, strong areas in downtown called Shaco Slip and Shaco Bottom. This sits smack dab in the middle of Shaco Slip. And man, we're really excited about that one. Um, it, it needs a little TLC. 
needs a good scrubbing on the face and, uh, and some, um, you know, a little bit of work on the inside, but it has a ton of potential. Um, and, um, this one's, this one looks really promising. We're, we're extremely excited about it. Um, it's, it's just one of those that you feel like you can go in and, and it's got some great bones, you know, exposed brick, wood beams, wood floors, mm-hmm. you know, it's just got a lot of personality and, yeah. and it's, it's one of those you get excited about. Um, it's yeah. one of those that I get excited about. Um, yeah, yeah we, yeah. we, we bought, uh. Um, I don't know how old yours was. We we bought one that was like a thirties build and another one that was a forties build. And this was, I don't know. This, I don't know what, go ahead. This was right after the civil war. So like 1870 oh, wow. something build. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, good bones. I mean, those, yeah. they, they say it a lot. They don't make buildings like they used to. And it's, it's, it's true, but uh, you know, beautiful brick exteriors that you just want, you don't want to touch, you know, the nope. wood floors. I'm sure we don't have original wood floors in there, but man, I mean, they've been there for decades. Yeah. You know, it just looks nice, but uh, yeah. man, I, I, that's what I'm imagining in my mind when you're, when you're talking about that. So, uh, and, and that's, that's what it is. There, there's even a couple of spots where you can tell they came in and put like some sort of flooring down and you're like, I bet you there's wood under that. And like, I want, I want to peek. I want to, I want to pull it up and be like, yeah, there it is. Yep. There, <laughs> yep. Yep. Another opportunity right there. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's funny how there there was, like, I guess the carpet revolution, where all of a sudden carpet was, you know, much cooler than wood floors, and everybody wanted to cover those things up. But uh, man, it sure is a nice surprise when you, you know, peek underneath the carpet and you're like, "Yep, there's wood there." Yeah, yeah. So, so we got that. That's the that's uh one we did recently, and then one that we're real excited about that we're doing right now is actually just outside Charleston, North Carolina. Oh, sorry, Charleston, South Carolina. Um, in Somerville, when for folks who who aren't familiar with it, Charleston kind of starts at the ocean, where the where like three rivers flow in, and uh, you go north and you run into North Charleston, then Somerville. It's right past that area, um, and strong strong area. Uh, lots of jobs going in there. Yeah. Um, lots of distribution. Lots of uh, medical going in down there. Um, and then this this is a uh, thirty two unit property that we've. Uh, We've got it under contract that we'll be closing on here in, just towards the end of September, actually. Okay. Um, so we're now, really excited is, about that one too. Is that the part of Charleston where the port is as well? So Somerville is not. Somerville is okay. more. If you think of, if you think of uh, you know you think about that industry, like you pull things in from the ocean, you put them in the port, then they go out to distribution centers that are pretty close by. Somerville is that area where all the big warehouses and distribution centers are. That you pull yeah. them in. And then they hit the interstate and they get deployed through the country. Um, All right. So that's, yeah. I mean, we, we, we're operating, we're definitely in the, uh, the South Carolina market. One thing I really like about Charleston is, is, is that port facility. Cause it's one of the mm-hmm. largest ports on the East coast and it does yep. drive a lot of business there. So, you know, um, port expansion and everything aside, it's, I, I think I'm very bullish on Charleston in general. Um, yep. and, you know, I've heard, you know, North Charleston in that area up north is, is where a lot of the growth's at. So um, assuming that's going to be, you know, a really, really solid deal for you. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're really excited. Like, like I said, you know, uh, you, you can only go right now, you can only go a couple of ways in Charleston for growth because, you know, it is on the water there. So uh, north is one of those directions where it seems to be headed. Yep. Yep. And that's right on a, a major freeway, major artery yep. too. So, I mean, yeah, you, you get that freeway, that's, that's, that's where the growth is going to happen. 
Yeah. So, you, I mean, unless they start reclaiming them, which they're probably not going to be doing in Charleston, you know, your, your expansion is going to go along one of the major freeways. So hundred yeah, percent good, good play there. All right. So um, what's next for you? Uh, what's next? Well, we're constantly looking for more things. Um, we're, we're, we're looking hard in the, that Charleston market. We're continuing to look hard in the Richmond market. We're expanding very, very uh, aggressively into the Columbia, South Carolina market. Mm-hmm. We've identified three zip codes inside that market where we want to focus. Uh, we're, we'll be closing on a property in with in one of those zip codes, a 24 unit here in the next uh, next two weeks. Yeah. Um, and we are, um, we will be going down to, to Columbia to kind of boots on the ground canvas the area yeah. where we have, uh, where we have four under contract right now that we're going to make sure that we want to continue to move forward with. Um, nice. so we'd like that market too. And that's, that seems to be next. Yeah. And that, that 24 unit, I mean, we talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago, but that's one that I looked at, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, yeah. Yeah. um, when it was marketed and it's, it's a beautiful property and, yep. um, we're, we like Columbia. My, my wife was actually born in West Columbia and raised in Lexington. So that's, that's part of the reason that, uh, that we focus in the, in the Carolinas and, uh, you know, we, we've got a property or two in that area as well. So, yeah. um, very, very bullish on that state and in that city as well. Yeah. Um, that said, we're going to shift gears slightly and, uh, bring Chad on. So Chad, welcome. Thank you. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah. So um, do us a favor and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time to have me on. I'm originally from Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, That's my primary market. Over the last four years, I've been uh, flipping single-family homes. Uh, I started out as a a real estate agent representing buyers and sellers. Um, And I did that for about six months, just long enough to realize that there was more to being in real estate than just being a real estate agent. So I decided the only other thing was to jump into fix and flip. Um, Unbeknownst to me that there's a lot more in real estate and that's what I'm finding out right now. So like I said, over the last four years, been doing fix and flip and and have been pretty successful at it Mm -hmm. and uh, been able to build a team um, doing doing a good amount of volume here in our local market. Um, About six months ago, I I discovered apartment syndications uh, through different podcasts, uh, Grant Cardone, uh, different mm-hmm. online platforms, and realized that in, the thing that I was really trying to get into was apartment investing instead of single family fix and flip, kind of like Tim was saying, uh, we all start somewhere. And, and that's kind of the, yeah. the transition that I'm looking to make now uh, from that single family fix and flip to the apartment investing. So that's what I've been doing. And just been diving headfirst, figuring out as much information as I can to, to be able to get started and and get into this world as well. So, yeah, absolutely. I don't know how I missed this before. You know, I, I just pulled up the the original e- our email chain, eight hundred one area code. I should have realized that. Um, <laughs> I grew up in just north of Salt Lake City. So, um, uh, so let's go deeper. Where in Salt Lake? Are, where, where in Utah are you? So I recently actually moved to Ogden, Utah. Okay. Um, so that's about. 45 minutes north of Salt Lake City, uh, approximately there. I actually have my broker who uh, I hold my license with has an office here in downtown Salt Lake off of Main Street. So I commute back and forth. Um, I kind of am all over, but primarily stationed in Ogden there. 
but uh, yeah, I, yeah, I grew up in Layton, yeah. went to, you know, Layton High School, and uh, my mom yeah. graduated Bonneville High School in Ogden. My dad graduated Benton in Ogden, so um, yeah, and my daughter drive by those all the time. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, th- those are my stomping grounds, my, my old strong cool. stomping grounds, I but uh, my, my folks still live in Layton, so I'm, I'm down in that area a lot. So, wow, small world, small world. But uh, um, so same question for you that, that, that I ask everybody on the show. What's your big burning why? Yeah, that's a good question. I think uh, it's, it's hard for me. I feel like I'm still young enough that I'm still trying to figure it out, out that why. I guess my real why uh, in the real estate world is that I want to be able to prove that if I can do it, then anyone can do it. Um, Mm -hmm. coming from my background, I don't, I don't have any real estate experience. I don't have any financial freedom success stories that are, uh, kind of my stepping stone to success. And Mm -hmm. I really just love the, the fact that if, if I can do it, then anyone else can do it. And that's really my why, uh, obviously I have three girls and a wife who I love a lot. And they're super supportive and I want to make them happy and successful. Um, But on top of that, I want to be able to be that catalyst for anyone that's looking to do something hard and, Mm -hmm. and aspire to be successful that, that if I can do it, they can do it. Awesome. I love it too. Yeah. And that's, that's something that uh, I think really helps, you know, just, just the, if I can do it, you can do it. You know, that's something that, uh, um, you know, several years ago, a guy who's actually invested heavily in Richmond, you know, pointed out to me, Hey, there, there's a lot of people who are doing it. You know, they can do it. You can do it. And I think that, uh, that helps out a lot, but, uh, um, here we go with my favorite part of the show. I'm going to say something like, Hey, Chad, we got Tim on the line. What do you want to ask him? Yeah. Good, good question, Tim. Super, super happy to be able to talk to you a little bit. Uh, the biggest thing that I want to talk about is, uh, how do you preserve broker relationships when they send you send you properties that aren't deals. Um, so I've, this comes from, just to give you a little backstory, this comes from a little bit of experience with a broker bringing me a deal off market that they, they had. I ran the numbers. Uh, I'm actually in Michael Blunk's uh, real estate investment course. So I have the syndication deal analyzer and I ran all the numbers. I looked at the cash on cash, looked at the IRR and the excess cash flow after, after everything. And, and there just wasn't the numbers there. Um, the, the broker was pitching it as potentially an IRR of 10 to 15% after year five or something like that. And the numbers just weren't making sense to me from what I was getting. And so when I told him that it wasn't a deal for me, he kind of got a little bit upset um, because I didn't trust the numbers that he was telling me. Um, and, you know, you want to preserve those relationships because in this, in this world, you don't want to burn those bridges because that's how deals come. So I just am curious, what do you do when, when deals come to you that aren't deals and you have to reciprocate that that's not a deal to, to the broker? Uh, very good question. And, and, and there's kind of a little bit of a fine line, right? Um, you know, cause you gotta, you gotta look out for your criteria. You gotta look out for your investors criteria. You know, for me, I tend to go, I tend to look at it two ways. One, um, we kind of go at it with the approach of everybody gets an LOI. Um, so we will submit what we feel is a good offer, um, you know, or a fair offer. And then we just offer our reasoning behind it. Um, you know, here's the things we're seeing. Here's our understanding of the market. Here's how we underwrote it. Uh, 
And we'll give the broker the opportunity to say, hey, you're the you're the market specialist here. Um, please, please feel free to, you know, challenge anything in here or or tell us where we may be missing something. Um, and and just kind of create that conversation. And then sometimes it just comes down to, hey, you know, I appreciate that. I, I just I'm just not seeing it. Um, you know, and so maybe this just isn't a, a deal for me and my investors. Um, but you know, just try that we just try to keep it cordial and keep the conversation going and, and tell them, Hey, we're really interested in anything you got coming up. Um, so please keep us in mind. Um, but so far for the most part, um, we've, I've found, and, you know, my, my underwriter has found that, um, you know, as long as we kind of can explain where we're coming at it from and what we're seeing that they, they tend to be okay. It sounds like maybe you try to do that, but, uh, the broker still wasn't quite seeing eye to eye with you and, you know, yeah. Honestly, I mean, that just happens sometimes and you just kind of got to say, Hey, I, I, you know, I just, I can't see it. And, and if, and if I don't think I can act on it, I can't take this to my investors, you know? Uh, yeah. Yeah. There, there, there's lots of ways to cordially slip out of it. I mean, and I, I think, you know, what Tim is saying is, is just right on is, you know, agree with their numbers. I mean, Hey, yeah, I understand your numbers, you know, it just doesn't quite meet the returns that I can get or, you know, lending, or, you know, this is, this doesn't quite fit the profile of what I'm looking for. Um, and then reiterate, this is what I'm looking for type stuff. And that, that'll go you know a long way to, to help in the relationship. Yeah. Any tips on how to build credibility on the numbers that you've run and your projections being a new investor to the space? The biggest thing is just being able, for me is just being able to speak to them with with facts and data. Um, you know, you're I'm seeing this in the market. This is what I'm seeing for rents. This is what I'm seeing for you know a reasonable capex for the type of lift that you're you know you're pitching me here or you're or you're communicating, and just being able to talk to it that way and 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 know and just being just know that your numbers are are fairly accurate. Um, as long as you kind of stick to those facts, you know, I always find that the credibility is there and then, you know, and, th- and this is easier said than done. Right. But then the next piece, the next level above that is once you get that first one under your belt, then you're able to point to, you know, we are closing on things that, that, yeah. you know, that we find and make sense and, and we can take to our investors. We have the ability to close. Um, and that, cause I mean, you said you're a broker as well, right? Um, you know, because yeah. one of the things you hate and one of the things all brokers hate is, right, the, the tire kickers, right? Um, yep. And, yep. and, and I, I get asked, I use that term because I get asked that term all the time. I was like, are you a tire kicker? Um, <laughs> and that's where, hey, here's our credibility package. Here's stuff we've done. Right. Um, and, and I can completely appreciate that. You know, I mean, you guys got a business. Brokers have, uh, you know, they've got to make money too. So they need to make sure the people that they're dealing with are making the best use of their time. And I can appreciate that. And and I just try to help brokers understand that upfront. It's like, hey, I don't want to waste your time. Um, so you know, I'm here to I'm here to do a deal, and and and, and just try to level set that way. Um, one thing I'll add is uh, lean on other people. You know, your question was about credibility for numbers. Lean on other people who are credible. You know, so if, if when I'm a brand, if I were brand new and actually I still do this, um, I'm underwriting a property down the street from me here in Idaho Falls and I'm new to the Idaho Falls market. I called a property manager and, you know, talked with the property manager and said, hey, you know, 
I'm only seeing a handful of properties on apartments.com, on Zillow, on everything else. Can you help me figure out where rents are on two ones and two twos and, you know, this type of property? And, you know, the property manager comes back with numbers and now you have a lot more credibility with the brokers because you're like, hey, I'm working with, you know, XYZ property manager. And, you know, they're telling me that we can probably get rents up to, you know, X amount, you know, and therefore, you know, my numbers are based on what this property manager is telling me we can get in that neighborhood, you know, and then if it, be, it then if it comes, comes down between our numbers versus their numbers, you, you've got something behind you that, that carries a little more weight um, than you who they're going to potentially view as a, you know, brand new guy that may not know the market well, but right. you know, lean on other professionals. And the other thing I'll say is don't be afraid to, you know, pay these other professionals to do these, to do this for you. Yeah. That's Brian. That's a, that's a really good point. I, I, I completely overlooked that and we do it all the time. I have a really, really good underwriter I partner with, but almost everything that we underwrite, we'll pass it through a couple of other guys we know in our network yeah. who work for other who work for other companies or syndicators and like, Hey, you know, sanity check us here. You know, what, what do you think of this? And, you know, if they come back and they're close or whatever, um, then we feel pretty good about it. And, we, and we're willing to, you know, kind of argue yeah. politely debate, you know, our numbers at that point. But yeah, that's a yeah. really good point. Yeah. I think going into it, I've always thought it's, it's me against the broker uh, just because so many things you hear from training and different things like that is that the brokers are going to give you their pro forma and it's going to be a inflated number and everything like that. So uh, is it our job to, to just take the broker's word for it? Uh, obviously that's, that's not what I think is the, the outcome that you want just because a lot of the times you're going to be underwater or you're going to select a bad investment. Um, but at the same time, I guess you want to build that, that relationship of helping them feel like they're, they're credible as well. Yeah. And, and, and like I've, I don't think I've ever told a broker his numbers were wrong, right? I, I've never said, man, your numbers are just wrong. Yeah. Um, I, I think the phrase I tend to use a lot is I'm just, I'm not seeing it. I'm just not, I, I can't, I can't get there. I, I'm not able to get there and, and maybe I'm missing something, but you know, at the end of the day, I kind of always look at it as you can't blame me for erring on the side of, I can't blame a broker for going after top dollar for his client. And right. he can't blame me for erring on the side of caution when it comes to my investors. Um, yeah. You know, I think yeah. it always helps to take a broker's point of view. You know, what's what's the broker's job? You know, they're taking a property to market. They're trying to maximize its value. Okay, so brokers are going to have a very rosy picture of what the property is worth. You know, and they're they're promoting it they're trying to you know make it look as good as possible to try to get the highest possible price that, that's what they're trying to do mm -hmm. so um do they stretch numbers a little bit they probably do you know do they make the you know the income look a little rosy and the the expenses look you know very streamlined yeah they do but you know just realize that you know and the other thing that they're looking for is they're looking for quick sale. I mean, sure, a sure bet sale, you know, as mm -hmm. quickly as possible for the best possible price. So I'd say don't look at it as you versus the broker because the broker doesn't win unless he puts a deal together. So look right. at it more as, right. you know, you are helping the broker 
get what he wants. Okay. You need to be, you need to go in that, that philosophy. Hey, I'm going to help you get what you want. I don't want to waste your time. All right. If we can hit your number, we are going to hit your number. And if we can't, then, you know, we'll wait for the next deal. Yeah. And, and Brian hits on a really key thing there. It's that whole win-win, right? And like, you know, Hey, I, I want to come with the strongest offer because I want to be competitive, but I also don't want to come with an offer that's so ridiculous that we're going to end up renegotiating and, and maybe the deal falls out 30, 45 days from now, which is, I mean, that no broker wants that. Right. So, right. you know, like, how can I get the most competitive deal with the most, um, with the highest probability of closing in the shortest amount of time for you. Right. Um, so help me get there. Um, you know, it's, it's not you against the broker. It, it really is kind of a partnership in a way. Um, yeah. and you know, that's, that's, that tends to be how we approach them. Yeah. I think that that's the key that I'm looking for is just because there's a limited amount of brokers that do a good amount of volume in the multifamily space in a specific market. And so if you get someone on the line that brings you a deal and then you're not able to fulfill on that deal or it's not a deal for you, just uh, making sure that you maintain that so that deal flow can be continuous over time. Um, but I think that you guys did an awesome job at answering that. That's super helpful. Um, I guess one other question that I do have um, is just what's a reasonable expectation as a new investor for the amount of capital that I should be looking to raise? Um, uh, just a just a reality check, <laughs> just because again, uh, going after larger properties, is it is it reasonable to say, hey, I, I I'm gonna go out and raise a million dollars or is it, Hey, I am going to try to raise a hundred thousand dollars and partner with the rest of the money. Or what, what would you say is starting out? What's the good expectation there? Uh, um, I, I, <laughs> I hate to say this, but I think it kind of depends. Um, and, and I'll give you, I'll give you a reason why. Um, it, it depends on your network, right? Depends on what you're, what you're starting with. Um, me, I I started a year ago, year and a half ago, raising. I've been doing multifamily longer than that, but um, I wasn't raising. I, I'd always been resistant to raising capital myself. Um, but I started a year and a half ago raising capital. And so it took me a little while to get to the point where I felt like I could confidently go in and say, I can bring 500000 to your deal. Um, that being, That's me. We have a guy that works with us who has been doing some sort of financial and connecting with, with high net worth individuals for 15 years now. He showed up having never raised a dime for a multifamily deal and literally in the, in the span of three days, completely funded 300,000 for this deal and 800,000 for another deal we're doing. Um, so it. it really, it really kind of, Really, kinds of kind of deal uh, depends on that net network that you have that you're starting with. Um, if you're starting from scratch, it's gonna you know, I, I would say you know start with a hundred, two hundred thousand, shoot for the moon uh, at some point. But uh, you know, if you got a bigger network or a bigger base, then you know you could be doing a million, two million easily. Yeah, my, I met a guy. He's actually been on the podcast as an aspiring investor, but. Uh, my first phone call with him was, was about a year ago. And he's like, I think I'd be really good at raising capital. You know, my job right now is X and I deal with a lot of high net worth people. Yep. And he's, he's raised for two deals and he brought four and a half million in. All right. Yeah. Wow. And it was okay. because his network, he already had a bunch of high net worth people in his network that had no problem writing a $50,000 check. Um, you know, my network, you know, I didn't have very many people in my network that, you know, were high net worth. 
And, you know, for, for me, the first deal was a struggle, you know, it was, um, I was going out to meetups all over the place, trying to find people who could, you know, who could invest because my network, I I didn't have a, you know, I don't have a rich uncle, you know, I don't have, you know, people who can invest. So I think, you know, Tim hit the nail on the head. It depends on what your network looks like already. Um, I, I would say as a new investor, you know, and I, I've talked to dozens and dozens of people on, on their first raise, you know, if, if you if you really want a dollar amount, I would say somewhere around 500,000, you know, is, is what a lot of brand new investors are are bringing in, you know, successfully. Um, there are a couple, there, there are people who bring less, there are people who bring more, but I think that's probably a good place to, a good goal to set for somebody who's, a good a, a, attainable goal to set for someone in your shoes. Yeah. So awesome. And, and Chad, oh, just to just to follow up that number, the yeah. first the first syndication I did where I raised for another syndicator, it was five hundred thousand. Um, okay. And and I hit that mark, but uh, it took my entire network to hit that mark. Um, yeah. But yeah. One one of my one of my partners um on our first deal made two phone calls and got five hundred thousand. Yeah. You know, so it's exactly yeah, you know, it, it really it really depends, you know. But uh, you know, from from where you're at, I think, you know, stick with a number like five hundred thousand and uh, you know, push, push and push and push till you get there. So cool. yeah. Thank you. All right, we got time for one more question if you got another one. Yeah, I guess my last question, uh centers around partnerships. Uh, I'm, I'm up to this point over the last six months have been going at this uh, as a single uh, member uh, of a business. And I hear a lot of different opinions as far as forming partnerships and maybe doing deals as partnerships uh, in this business. I know that there's, there's a lot of aspects um, that we have to cover as far as asset management, property management, obviously raising and, and acquisitions and, and everything that gets involved with that. Have you, have you seen any, what's, what's the, the pros and cons of not having a partner? Um, pros and cons. So pros are, you know, you got people to lean on, you got people to, to back you up. You got people to question you on what you think is the right way. Um, you know, you, 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 automatically expand your network for one, you know, going back to the network piece, um, you know, you got people that bring different skill sets to the table, you know, for instance, my primary partner, a great guy, um, Robert Musso, um, he's got a huge background in sales and marketing. Um, He's got a huge alumni network um, and he's, he's done a ton of, uh, he's done a ton of smaller properties where he's been hands on with, you know, renovations down to paint selection and, you know, what color should the door look like? Um, that level of experience is invaluable. Um, and then, you know, I come at it more from, I have an IT background, I have a skill, I can scale businesses and, and I'm, I'm good boots on the ground and getting in a property and, and seeing, you know, shortcomings in asset management. Um, so you put us together and all of a sudden we make a pretty good team. So that's the pros. I guess the cons are is, you know, you own a little bit less of a deal. Um, you're not always going to agree on everything. Um, conversations can be difficult. Um, and then, you know, um, you got a, you know, uh, something I've been dealing with recently, not with Robert, let me just call that out, but, uh, is, uh, 
you know, just make sure you really, really know your partner well, because um, this is not a short-term relationship. Uh, most of these aren't. Um, so make sure you, you know who you're uh, partnering with. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add one, one of the biggest pros, and this is kind of where I started getting traction is when I partnered up with somebody. Um, I think most brokers realize that, you know, one person doesn't go far in this business, right? Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um, you when you look at credibility with brokers, if you're calling up with the I, 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 you know, they're going to, you know, their spidey senses are going to be tingling and they're going to be, you know, hey, is this one guy working on his own trying to you know, tackle a $5 million building? Um, but one thing the partnership brings to you is just a little bit more credibility. And if you can line yourself up with somebody who has a little more experience, then that's, I think that counters all of the potential negatives that come with it. You know, the the lack of flexibility maybe or, or whatnot. But uh, um, I honestly don't think there there's a really good way to get to where you want to go without, you know, partnering with somebody in one way, shape or form. But uh, cool. that said, oh, that, we, that's super helpful. Yeah. That said, we're, we're about out of time. So one question for each of you to finish up. How can investors learn more about you? Tim, you go first. All right, sure. Uh, so on my website, uh, Harvest Property, uh, sorry, HarvestPG.com. That's Harvest, P is in Paul, G is in George.com. Or reach out to me directly, TVest at HarvestPG.com. Uh, those are probably the two best ways. Um, always right. up for a chat. All right, we'll put that information in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, tap the show notes and uh, this magical internet thing will whisk you away. Um, Chad, same question for you. How can investors learn more investors? How can listeners and investors learn more about you? <laughs> yeah. If you want to follow me on Instagram, uh, it's instagram.com forward slash maven capital group. Um, that's probably the best way. I have a link there that you can access a free training that'll link to my Calendly link and, uh, be happy to jump on a call at any time with anyone to discuss further opportunities as well. Um, my email is chat at mavencapitalgroup.co. Um, that's movingcapitalgroup.co. So, all right. And we'll have links to those in the show notes as well. So if you're interested in linking up with Chad, definitely reach out. So that said, thank you to both of you for a great episode today. Um, I had a good time. Hope you guys did too. Yeah. Thanks, Brian. Nice to meet you, Chad. Thanks, Brian. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show. So pull out your phone, tap subscribe and leave us a five star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.